Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we're on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore the stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn about and reflect on the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples, and the complex perceptions of and barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous people in Canada today. Leonard Thompson, 13 years old, diabetes mellitus, 65 pounds. Starve the child to let them live. The treatment's as cruel as the disease. It's a death sentence. Dr. Banting. This could be it. He's the first to receive this trial. But will it save him? It's not pure enough. So we try again. And again. And again. Before the discovery of insulin, diabetes was a death sentence. Banting, Best, Collop, and McLeod's breakthrough has saved millions of lives. Leonard Thompson's was the first. If you're connected with U of T at all, you've probably already heard by now that this year marks the 100th year of the discovery of insulin, a life-saving treatment for diabetes that happened here at the university. This discovery earned the scientists behind it the 1923 Nobel Prize in Medicine and was a pivotal moment in Canadian medical science, immortalized in tributes like the Heritage Minute you just heard. So, in keeping with the theme of 100 for our 100th episode here at Raw Talk Podcast, Today, we're exploring the story behind the discovery of insulin, what role insulin plays today in the management of diabetes, and what the future may hold for diabetes patients in terms of treatment or even cure. I'm Daniel. And I'm Yaknesh. Welcome to episode 100 of Raw Talk Podcast. To talk about the impact of insulin, we first need to understand diabetes. For this, we interviewed one of the recipients of this year's Canada Gardner International Awards, which is widely known to be a precursor to the Nobel Prize. My name is Daniel Drucker, and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and a senior scientist at the Lindenfeld Tenenbaum Research Institute. Dr. Drucker's work in the field of endocrinology has led to major advancements in treating diabetes. Daniel sat down with Dr. Drucker for a crash course on diabetes. So diabetes is really a disorder uh, characterized by defects in your body's ability to utilize blood sugar or, or glucose. And it's a primary energy source for many of our cells. And we require insulin for uh, transporting glucose into many of the cells in our body. And when we don't have enough insulin or the insulin that we have isn't working properly, the glucose can't get into cells and it rises and that's how we define diabetes. Yeah, if you look back into the ancient literature and, and you start reading what the Greeks wrote or, or later on the Romans, you can see that excess of thirst uh, and, and weight loss uh, are really the hallmarks of poorly controlled diabetes both thousands of years ago as well as today. So type one is generally a complete deficiency of insulin because the cells that make insulin, the beta cells in our pancreas, they have been destroyed by our body's immune system. And this used to be called juvenile onset diabetes because it occurs very commonly in babies or, or children or teenagers, but it also does occur in uh, adults, even uh, older people. So we now call this type one rather than juvenile onset diabetes. Type two diabetes is not a destruction of the beta cells, but it's uh, an inability to either make enough insulin or to have our insulin act properly 
And that's why the glucose rises. So who's at risk of developing diabetes? When asked that question, am I at risk? Then your family history is probably a very important predictor of your risk. And so most people who develop type 2 diabetes, about 90% of them have somebody in their family who also has the disease, really highlighting the importance of genetics. And we also know that beyond the genetics, our lifestyle, uh, our body weight, our diet, uh, those also impact our risk of developing type 2 diabetes. There's a very strong genetic component. Now, you know, in less than 10% of the cases, can we point to one gene and a defect in that one gene and say, aha, that's why you developed type 2 diabetes? Really, in about 90% of the people, there are hundreds of small variants in genes that predispose to developing type 2 diabetes. So it's a very complicated genetic architecture. And say you had a patient with diabetes, how would you go about treating them? Well, if one has type 1 diabetes, then insulin is generally the only therapy that is indicated. If one has type 2 diabetes, there are a dozen types of glucose-lowering medications that one might be prescribed, as well as diet and exercise as the first approach to control type 2 diabetes. And obviously, the combinations of recommendations and therapies would depend on the individual and their individual characteristics. So it sounds like a lot of these approaches, even insulin, are really just treatments and not cures. Has there been any work on a cure for diabetes? So, you know, type 1 diabetes is the holy grail for the, the cure. And, you know, even Banting in his writing in 1923, very prophetically wrote that insulin is not a cure, it controls the disease. And so, you know, how could we cure uh, people with type 1 diabetes? Well, if we could restrain the immune system's attack on the beta cells while either regenerating enough beta cells or providing a new supply of beta cells, that would probably be very close to a cure for most people. I think stem cells hold enormous promise right now. We've made a lot of progress in the field. Uh, we know how to make human uh, beta cells that secrete insulin using stem cells. There have been some uh, clinical trials already. Certainly, this technology works very well in animals. And, you know, we still have a ways to go, and we have to figure out the immune system piece and the encapsulation piece and how to really uh, get lots of differentiated beta cells in, in a manner that's not prohibitively expensive. So these are all solvable problems, and a great deal of effort is being directed at, at solving these questions. We'll hear more about stem cell research a little later, one of the several exciting frontiers in diabetes treatment. But like so many diseases, these treatments represent the products of years of work by researchers around the world. We asked Dr. Drucker what it meant to be diagnosed with diabetes before the discovery of insulin. It was a miserable existence, both, uh, I would say, physically and emotionally. You know, why emotionally? Because it was known that the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes was associated with a, a certain death. And the only thing that could prolong one's life was really starvation and carbohydrate restriction to try and prevent the extent of, of glucose rise by limiting glucose uptake. So if you can imagine you're a young person, you're told you have type 1 diabetes, you've already lost weight and you're hungry and thirsty, and now the only treatment you have to prolong your life by a few months or a year or so is to really start starving yourself to an even greater degree. So it was just a miserable diagnosis for any person at that time, especially children. Yeah, that sounds terrible. And I can't imagine what people with diabetes back then had to go through. Can you walk me through the discovery of insulin? Because I can imagine that it likely had a huge impact on people dealing with diabetes. So it was known for many years, well before uh, Banting, that the pancreas was a very good candidate for containing this elusive glucose regulating substance. And in fact, if you look in the literature, even in the late 1800s and 
early 1900s, before Banting, there were many scientists in North America and in Europe and South America that already were trying to uh, take the pancreas and make extracts. And they had some success with glucose lowering. And Banting had the same dream as it were that if he took the pancreas and made an extract, he could identify the elusive glucose lowering hormone. And he came to Toronto. He was working at uh, the University of Western Ontario at the time and giving some lectures. And that was mainly a clinical school back in the early 1900s. They didn't have research laboratories to allow Banting to pursue this idea. So he came to uh, Toronto and visited the professor of biochemistry, J.J.R. McLeod, who was a world expert in carbohydrate metabolism. And he went over his ideas with McLeod. And remarkably, uh, McLeod didn't throw him out of his office and say, uh, you orthopedic surgeon, what do you know about uh, carbohydrate metabolism and diabetes? And the answer would have been very little. But McLeod had the foresight to say, well, you know, you come to Toronto in the summer and I'll find some funds and some dogs and uh, a student and some lab space for you. And the rest, is, as we say, was history. He was paired up with uh, Baston uh, a few months later with Kalp, who was a, a biochemistry expert. Their experiments in dogs worked. And in a few months, they walked across the street to the Toronto General Hospital, handed over this extract, and it worked in humans. The famous administration of insulin to Leonard Thompson at the Toronto General Hospital. And it's remarkable, it was all a matter of about six to eight months before this happened. Well, it was really two times. So the, the first time was not perfect. There was very little glucose lowering and there was a lot of inflammation and infection. But Collip, who was a, a genius in biochemistry, managed to get a much more purified extract. And the second time was perfect. Insulin was discovered 100 years ago, but 100 years is a long time. Have there been any additional improvements to insulin since then? And what about the future of insulin? 100 years ago, we got the insulin from animals. Initially, obviously, these were dogs where insulin was purified. And very quickly, uh, we started purifying insulin from both cows as well as from pigs. And this, I think, is logical because we had lots of cattle and, and lots of pigs around as part of our food supply, and it was easy to as well take the pancreas from these animals and isolate insulin. And this is how insulin was isolated and delivered pharmacologically for the better part of you know, 70 years or so. And it was really only in the 1980s when through the use of genetic engineering and recombinant DNA technology that we started to see introduction of recombinant human insulin into the marketplace. And of course, we've had innovation in the insulin molecule itself. We can now tinker with the molecule and formulations, and we now have several rapid-acting insulins as well as several uh, basal insulins with more prolonged circulating half-lives. And there's some tremendous innovation underway to make what we call smart insulins, insulins that would only work if the blood sugar was elevated and would just sit there as a reservoir inactive if the blood sugar was normal. So we, we've seen a lot of innovation in insulin and more to come. And what's so different with these insulin variants? The rapid acting insulins, as well as the long acting insulins, have either modifications of the amino acids in the insulin molecule, or the long-acting insulins can have, for example, a fatty acid group that binds the molecule to albumin and therefore it prolongs its half-life. The smart insulins have all kinds of differences in their chemical structure and, and polymers, and they're complex to different molecules that are glucose sensitive. So there are many different technologies that people are working on to make what we call smart or glucose responsive insulins. While these different versions of insulin help patients manage their blood sugar levels in different situations, that might not be the only motivation for pharmaceutical companies to develop new variants. Looking back 100 years, the original patent for insulin was sold by Banting, Best, Collip, and McLeod to the University of Toronto only for a dollar, with the goal of keeping this life-saving medication affordable to everybody. Yet today, some American patients pay hundreds of dollars per month for insulin. Research by the Healthcare Costs Institute also found that the average prices of the drug almost doubled over five years from 2012 to 2016. 
with almost identical trends across producers. So we looked into what's driving these price increases. Daniel, can you tell us what you found? Are these insulin variants related to rising prices? Well, pharmaceutical patents are supposed to run out after 20 years. But if a patent holder makes some incremental improvements over the current version, they're often able to file for a new patent, which then extends that duration for another 20 years. So critics call this strategy evergreening, and there's this widespread speculation that insulin producers are taking this approach, as well as other dubious legal tactics, to prevent generic versions of insulin from coming onto the market. Huh. But why doesn't some new startup just copy the original insulin and undercut the current monopoly? So there are a few different challenges. First, if we're talking about the very first insulin that Banting, Best, Collip, and McLeod used, that actually came from a dog, and later versions did come from cows and pigs. But these animal-based insulins are most active three to four hours after injection. So unless you can time your meals really well, it's difficult for patients to use. And because insulin is this big, complex protein molecule, which is difficult to produce using traditional drug manufacturing methods. So in the 70s, we used recombinant DNA to basically hijack the protein-making machinery of bacteria to make tons of insulin in bioreactors. And then, of course, purify it and mix it. But even with this version of insulin, you still have to give multiple doses throughout the day, and the timing of peak activity is still a little bit unpredictable. So compared to the latest versions of insulin, which are more reliable and include both rapid-acting and longer-acting variants, most prescribers wouldn't recommend the older variant from the 70s. For example, one modern insulin called Lantus requires just a single injection a day. And really, the original insulin just can't compete with that. These newer versions of insulin can't be copied, right? Right. So because these molecules really can only be produced at scale in these complicated processes with bacteria and bioreactors, it's these methods of production that the patents are protecting. And to try and develop a new method of production is both extremely expensive and has large regulatory hurdles, like conducting clinical trials to show that the new approach is equally safe and effective. So these barriers tend to discourage companies from developing generic versions. There has been some progress, though, like versions of Lantus have been approved in the EU for quite some time now. It just hasn't reached the U.S. yet since the patent for Lantus is still active there. And I know there are some people working to solve this problem, like the Open Insulin Foundation, which we'll link in the show notes. But it's really an uphill battle. I also asked Dr. Drucker about his thoughts on the rising cost of insulin. So this is, I think, one of the modern day tragedies of how we deliver healthcare uh, in different parts of the world. So this is very much a, a health uh, care specific issue. So there are many countries in the world that provide insulin for free. In fact, you know, we're in Canada. We have insulin that's affordable, but is not free. And we've seen uh, great momentum over the last few years for introduction of what we call a pharmacare program, the uh, program that would pay for essential drugs for people who needed them. And one would put, I think, insulin at the top of the list of an essential life-saving medication for someone with type 1 diabetes. For most of us in the field, it really is unconscionable that someone would be deprived or need to limit the supply of insulin or need to make choices. Do I pay for my car loan? Do I pay for the rent of my house? Or do I choose to stay alive and in good health because I have to buy my insulin? So this is a tragedy I think that deserves the attention of uh, politicians in the healthcare industry and the pharmaceutical industry because I think it's very difficult to defend the status quo in countries where insulin is not easily affordable. It's 100% solvable. It requires uh, some political, I think, intervention. Um, no country should be known as the country where people cannot afford a life-saving drug that was discovered 100 years ago. And so lives are cut short. Uh, and, and we're talking about some very wealthy countries. We haven't talked about the difficulty of supplying insulin to remote regions where we don't have the refrigeration to keep insulin cold or to economically uh, less well-off countries that might not have a sophisticated healthcare system and distribution system for pharmaceuticals. We're really talking about the United States, you know, one of the strongest, most developed, wealthiest nations in the world. So it's a, a travesty, uh, simply put, and it needs to be fixed. And uh, I think politicians uh, should intervene and make sure that a solution is uh, 
basically forced upon the industry to the benefit of people with type 1 diabetes. I believe in fair markets and I'm a big supporter of the pharmaceutical industry, but I guess I draw the line at having uh, innocent people uh, suffer and, and sometimes die needlessly because our uh, insulin supply chain pricing and reimbursement system is broken. If you're interested in the topic of drug pricing more generally, check out episode 92, where we dive deeper into the regulations and stakeholders in Canada. We heard about the significance of insulin from Dr. Drucker, but we wanted to get a patient's perspective as well. So we sat down with Jennifer DeCruz, who is a diabetes patient, educator, and public health nurse at Unison Health and Community Services in Toronto. What was your experience growing up with diabetes like, Jennifer? I was diagnosed about 16 years ago, and when I initially started insulin therapy, I was very shameful. I, I, and I think again, it was just the culture was like, oh, don't, don't pull out your needle. You're going to make other people feel uncomfortable. And I was like, this is my, this is what keeps me alive. And this is totally normal. And this is okay. So I feel as though now with much more people understanding what diabetes is with all the advanced technology, wearing um, a glucose monitor, wearing a pump, I believe it's much more accepted and understood now, which I am so appreciative of because I have a couple of family members who also have type 1 and I see them struggle with sort of the same thing, kind of feeling a little bit of guilt, a little bit of shame that they have to do this before they eat and I have to do all that. Um, but hopefully in time that they understand that it is totally normal and that it's a normal part of life for them now and that if anyone tells you otherwise, if anyone belittles you or makes you feel any sort of negative way when you are giving yourself insulin, they're probably not a friend that you should have. It's really unfortunate that you experienced stigma growing up, but we're happy for you that more widespread education about diabetes has helped with that. Do you find that your patients experience parallels in their own journeys? They do. And like I said before, they try to really either not take the insulin at all because they feel that they don't need it or they take much less than they really do need because they feel as though having too much is a sign of poor health. So, again, it's just that that education component and that awareness that this is this is something that you do need and it's a normal process and that it only benefits you. It doesn't hurt you if you're taking it correctly. Part of these struggles are due to misconceptions about insulin. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you see? So some of the misconceptions that I have come across with insulin is that it is unnecessary, that um, their medication is more than sufficient enough when in many cases sometimes it's not, as well as less is more. So they will try to stagger their insulin or give much that, less than is necessary because they feel as though they, again, don't need it. A lot of individuals just believe that they don't need medications and that these things, because they are silent, they believe that they are fine and that they're being, uh, that they're well managing. Um, how I try to disprove that misconception is, again, educating them and educating my clients on the role of insulin and how it works in the body versus, let's say, a non-diabetic and a diabetic, why it's necessary. Do you find that your lived experience with diabetes helps you connect with your patients who are navigating these misconceptions? Sometimes I do feel as though some clients may feel that they don't connect with their providers just because diabetes is sort of silent, it's not visual. Sometimes they feel as though they are not understood. Uh, the benefit of me as a provider is that I also do have diabetes, so I'm able to connect with them on that level, and that does make them feel a sort of sense of comfort and a sense of understanding, which I do hope then create some motivation and some um, encouragement to continue coming to diabetes appointments so that they are able to, again, feel as though they are being heard and understood. So I can connect with their uh, struggles with diabetes management. A lot of the times um, I find that my clients feel guilty for maybe eating something that is quote unquote not, not right or um, having blood sugars that are not within range. Um, a lot of times my clients feel guilt and shame because they're not managing well. And I, I am thoroughly honest with them and I say my blood, my blood sugars aren't perfect. Nobody's is perfect. But what we can all do is just try our best every day. And every day is a new day. It's a new start. So don't dwell on the past. Think about what you can be doing now for your future. And you work within a team of healthcare professionals who can all support that process of management. How can some of the other members of that team help squash those misconceptions? 
Within our team, they would be seeing the registered nurse, which would be I, and also the registered dietitians. So registered nurses are able to give sort of an overview on food and nutrition and how it affects diabetes. But because um, a great part of diabetes management is our food intake and other lifestyle habits, we introduce them to the registered dietitians as well so that they can get even further education on understanding how food uh, affects their diabetes and maybe some some choices that they can make in order to still be enjoying food while not completely eliminating some food groups or believing that they can't have any sugar whatsoever, which is also a very big misconception. So providing that extra support and education kind of is a whole part of the whole team. So it sounds as though education is one of the most important tools for a patient managing diabetes. Education is definitely important because it's definitely one of one of the most important tools that anyone can utilize. So with an understanding of how things work, whether it is food intake, their medications, their insulin, with that education, they're able to apply that in real life and um, able to self-manage much better because they do have the knowledge and the skill set to do so. What's in store for you in the years ahead? What sort of goals do you have for your role in diabetes education? I do have an end goal of hopefully one day working within the pediatric realm. I do want to work with other children. I want to be able to connect with them, show them that there are other people who are living like them and that it's okay and sort of set that positive mindset right from the get-go so that moving forward in their life, it is something that they can accept and, and hopefully understand. What does the future of diabetes education and awareness look like to you? difficult to say when but I think the awareness just continues to grow I saw recently that there was a runway model who actually wore her omnipod down the stage which was absolutely amazing so I think just continuing to uh, create that exposure create that awareness spread that education it can only hopefully the stigma will decrease and the all of the positive sort of aspects of diabetes and education overall will increase a, a much bigger understanding they play an important role in showing everyone that anything is possible despite your diagnosis, despite having to take insulin, despite having to take medications or check your blood sugar, that there are many others just like you and that should not be something that stops you from doing absolutely anything. While Banting and Bess successfully purified the first isolate of animal insulin safe for human use over 100 years ago, insulin alone isn't a cure. Luckily, there has been a lot of innovation in the field since then. As Dr. Drucker alluded to at the start of the episode, stem cell therapy is one of the most promising areas of new research. Yagnesh spoke to Dr. Paresh Misra, a nephrologist and a PhD candidate in the Nostril Lab at the University of Toronto to learn more about stem cells and what these advances could mean for diabetes patients in the future. So you're a nephrologist by training. Can you expand on how kidneys and diabetes are connected? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing about the kidney is, like, I mean, the, the main way people think about the job of the kidney is to filter the blood. So really anything that happens in the blood, almost any, you know, a large proportion of diseases that can affect the body and that, you know, affect multiple organs will ultimately end up affecting the kidney, especially diseases that affect um, the blood circulation. Um, so one big cause of kidney disease is high blood pressure, for instance. It's one of the major causes of kidney disease. But another one is diabetes. Diabetes is, is becoming increasingly common in the population. Um, and we still, after all this time, don't really understand, you know, what exactly is going on. But diabetes affects a whole lot of organs uh, around the body over the long term. And the kidney is a prime target. Um, and in fact, kidney failure is often one of the big things that limits the lifespan of patients with diabetes. Um, so, you know, what, it, what exactly happens, we're not sure, you know, the, the, sh the excess sugar in the blood maybe, you know, links to a number of uh, proteins that are important for kidney functioning, um, or some problems with the hormone status of these uh, patients with, di with, with diabetes um, somehow affects the kidney. We're not entirely sure what it is. We do know that for a lot of patients, if you can control blood sugar levels, uh, you can control, prevent, or at least limit the progression of kidney disease, but that doesn't seem to be the full picture. But all that being said and done, regardless of how it happens, for some reason, diabetes does seem to really affect the kidneys. And because diabetes is common, diabetic kidney disease is common. What research do you do in the lab? And what is the main research goal of the Nostro lab? So Dr. Christian Nostro's lab, the one that I work in now, is basically a stem cell and diabetes labs. What we're trying to research is how can we use human pluripotent stem cells to make insulin producing cells in a dish? Um, and that's useful for a number of reasons. Of course, 
you know, the ultimate reason would be to be able to treat patients um, with, you know, diabetes and to improve their quality and quantity of life. Uh, but also, it's interesting just studying how the body develops, you know, and, and the process through which the human pluripotent stem cells become pancreatic cells or any cell type is actually the same type of process through which the fetus develops. And it's very hard to do research on human fetus, but uh, you can kind of get around that by using human pluripotent stem cells. So we're kind of interested in both angles. But I think our primary focus is really in trying to get these cells into patients for a kind of a better way to treat diabetes. What are stem cells and how do you make them in the lab? A stem cell is a cell type that has two features. The first feature is that it can make more copies of itself, identical copies. So not every cell type can do this. Um, but the second thing that a stem cell can do is it can kind of what we call differentiate or it can specialize into uh, a cell type that performs a useful function in the body. Um, so you know, the, the useful way to think about stem cells in the context of regeneration, if a body, if some part of your body gets used up or injured or depleted, then stem cells will be the ones to make more copies of themselves and specialize to replace the type of tissue or cell type that was lost. We think about stem cells by how many different cell types can they specialize in. So there's a range, right? If you think of like uh, an embryo, an embryo is almost entirely comprised of stem cells. And when it starts off as that single zygote, that single zygote is going to make every single cell type of your body, ultimately. So that we'd call a totipotent cell type, uh, a totipotent stem cell, because um, it won't just make the body, but it'll also make the placenta and so on. At the other end of the spectrum, you have certain stem cells that can only make a single cell type. So for instance, there are muscle stem cells that live kind of around the muscles and it can regenerate muscle cells when they're depleted. So you have a whole spectrum in between there. The sweet spot for us is the pluripotent stem cells. So these are cells that can make any cell type of the body. They can't make cell types like the placenta that are useful, you know, while the fetus is growing, but they can still make any cell type that you would need to form a functional um, human being. Uh, and so, uh, so we like to use these and, and like, I think these types of cells have really captured the imagination of researchers worldwide because all we need to do is crack the code. Uh, and if we can do that, we can in theory build any part of the human body in a dish. So the question is, where do you get pluripotent stem cells? In the adult body, there are no pluripotent stem cells, right? You can't take a piece of your adult body and make a whole new uh, human being out of it um, without anything else. So uh, they really just exist in the embryo at its earliest stages. So the classic way of obtaining embryonic stem cells was to use embryos that were fertilized in vitro. So for example, you perform IVF and you have some leftover embryos, you can actually extract a few cells from that embryo and culture them in a dish. And then you can establish a line of embryonic stem cells, which are still pluripotent. They can make all cell types of the body. What's as I mentioned, one of the key things about stem cells is they can make more copies of themselves. So you, once you have your stem cell extracted from a single embryo, you could use this for a very long time. In fact, one of the, the common embryonic stem cells that we use in the lab was established in the late 90s, uh, and it's still going strong. We still have large quantities of these, these stem cells in the lab. Um, but in kind of the mid-2000s, about 2006, scientists cracked the code of what makes a cell pluripotent. They identified a number of genes um, that could render, actually, if you put them into any adult cell type, it could turn those adult cell types into pluripotent stem cells. So this, uh, you know, unlocked a whole new ability for scientists because now they no longer needed to go to embryos to get, to get pluripotent stem cells. They could take any stem cell from a person, a skin cell, you know, a blood cell, and then introduce these genes and turn them into pluripotent stem cells. And we call these induced pluripotent stem cells. So those are the major types of pluripotent stem cells that researchers will work with in a lab, induced or embryonic. And you know they, they definitely do have their differences, but overall, both of them seem to be able to generate most of the cell types that we, you know, we've been able to generate in a dish from embryonic stem cells. We can make them also from induced pluripotent stem cells. Are there any advantages to using these induced stem cells versus embryonic ones? So there are many differences. The first thing is that if the cell type that you started off with was a bit unhealthy for an induced pluripotent stem cell, it'll still probably be a little bit unhealthy as opposed to kind of like that fresh embryonic stem cell that just came from, you know, a developing embryo. Um, that's maybe a minor concern, but it's something to consider. Um, so any kind of genetic abnormality from the adult cell you use to generate induced pluripotent stem cells will remain with the induced pluripotent stem cell unless you correct it somehow. Um, one challenge with embryonic stem cells is you need an embryo, right? And there sometimes are sometimes there are ethical limitations in how you can access the embryo. Whereas uh, for induced pluripotent stem cells, you just need an adult cell. Uh, and so in that sense, some of the ethics surrounding stem cell research and stem cell uh, use are alleviated with induced pluripotent stem cells. 
Additionally, like anytime, if, if, you're, if your focus is on uh, generating organs for transplantation, for curing human diseases, you eventually need to transplant whatever you're making it back into a human. So an embryo, because it's taken from an embryo, it's never going to be a cell from a human. It's always going to be a, a different cell type. So it's likely to be rejected, actually, when it gets transplanted. So um, this is a common thing that affects all organs that are transplanted because the immune system is so good at detecting things that don't come from your own body. Uh, anytime you transplant any organ that could potentially even be helpful, your, your immune system will immediately recognize and attack it and kill it unless you give that patient medications that keep the immune system low. Uh, and this comes with its own challenges. But in theory, if you could generate um, uh, you know, an organ from a patient's own cells, that wouldn't be foreign. And maybe the body would accept it without immunosuppressants. Why use stem cells to treat diabetes instead of insulin? It's a very good question. I think there are totally different paradigms treating a diabetes. There's probably a limit into how close or how good you can get with exogenous insulin therapy. So, um, you know, the classic way insulin's been given over the past 100 years is a patient will typically measure their blood sugar level. So they'll take, you know, something, they'll prick themselves take a bit of blood, put it into a machine and see how high their glucose is or their blood sugar levels are. Um, and then using this information, they then figure out how much insulin they need and inject it into themselves. So it's kind of like a, a bit of a clunky process. You can imagine that it's not great for your quality of life if you have to do this several times a day, picking yourself, no matter how good that insulin is or acts. Now, we've, we've made a lot of improvements to this type of therapy, over the, especially over the past few decades. And we've now you know, come so far with technology that we have something known as the artificial pancreas. So it's a totally enclosed system um, where you have a pump now. You no longer have to prick yourself several times a day. You kind of implant a little catheter under the skin, and over the course of a day, it'll continuously release insulin. And associated with this, you have a continuous blood glucose sensor that measures your blood sugar levels throughout the day. And when these two communicate, you can actually, with very little input from the patient, figure out how much exactly insulin you need. Um, so this is probably the state of the art of external insulin therapy. But as you can imagine, there are certain you know, quality of life factors to consider. You're walking throughout the day with an external pump. It needs to be cared for. You may need to replace the insulin. Potentially, if you're doing you know, water sports, you may need to take it off. And of course, you always have to worry about like, am I going to break it? And is there going to be a problem? Whereas with transplantation therapy, you know, it's inside your body. You kind of trust your body to take care of it and no longer have to worry about it. So there's something to be said for that as well. So once the cells are transplanted into your body, they would function just like a regular pancreas and automatically regulate blood sugar? That's the idea. That's what we're trying to do. So we know that from pancreas transplantation, you know, if you take a patient with type 1 diabetes, give them a pancreas back from another cadaveric, you know, from a deceased donor, their blood sugar will essentially go back down to completely normal. So we just need to get the extra cells back into that patient, right? That, that's kind of, you know, what we're basing ourselves off of. You know, the pancreas is 95% not making insulin. Most of it's just producing enzymes to help digest your food. So do we really need such an invasive surgery to get a whole huge organ inside your body? Or can we just give patients those insulin producing islet cells? And so this is a technology that's also developed, you know, People have taken pancreas, they digest it out, and they just extract the islets, and then they're able to just inject those islets into the vein um, of a patient. And you know these islets will then settle surprisingly into the liver, and then they'll they'll kind of respond almost like normal islets will. They'll still continuously monitor blood sugar levels throughout the day, and then release the exact amount of insulin required. And that's again the paradigm we're trying to mimic. For the whole pancreas, we like I have patients that have been transplanted over 20 years ago, for instance, and they're still going strong. So if you care for that organ, as I mentioned, you know, the organ can still be rejected by your immune system. So these patients do need to be on medications that suppress the immune system. Um, but if you care for, for the organ well, and also if you're a good match, because there's some things that you can't control for even with the best immunosuppressants, then those organs can last a very long time. Um, with islet transplantation, you know, the difference between an islet transplantation and whole pancreas is that when you transplant a pancreas, you get all the islets of the pancreas in a nice, healthy environment that they're used to. When you give, you know, islet transplantation, you lose a lot just in the isolation process. And then when you inject them into the blood, you lose a bunch of them just right there. Like the blood is a kind of a toxic environment for these islets. And then when they lodge into the liver, not all of them also last. So over time, you do have a, more, a bit more of a kind of islet cell attrition. So islet cell transplants don't tend to last quite as long. Um, but maybe if you're able to give patients enough islets, you know, that therapy would be much more long lasting. Uh, and that's a problem with, with cadaveric transplantation. You're dependent on donors. And that would be a limitation you wouldn't have with stem cell derived islets. Are there any potential cons that we should consider as well? 
Absolutely. And we don't often talk about those, but I think they're definitely there. So, um, I mean, so the first thing is, of course, how are you going to get into the patient? It may require some sort of surgery or some sort of minimally invasive procedure. Um, but presume it's a relatively minor thing to, you know, to go through if it's going to give you sort of a lifelong therapy or a lifelong benefit. Um, the second thing is, you know, there's always risk of introducing infections when you're when you're giving a biological transplantation, uh, either infections from some materials you're using or depending on the donor it was achieved from. Stem cells are grown in a lab. They're not really actively produced from a donor and you can test them much more thoroughly. So hopefully this shouldn't be a problem, but it's still something to consider. There are certainly areas to optimize. How big these are challenges you know, remain to be determined. But the first one is, uh, I kind of alluded to, is like, how are you going to get these cells into the patient? So a lot of people have done, you know, studies on animals where they've transplanted these stem cell derived islets into animals, and they've shown that it can reverse the blood sugar levels of these diabetic animals. So that's pretty incredible. But it's one thing to get cells into an, you know, into a mouse where you can transplant into all sorts of weird places, into the spleen, under the capsule of the kidney. But how you get into a human patient is, is is an important consideration, especially like if this if this patient may be a child. I think that'll probably be one of the first challenges that scientists are going to have to overcome. So there are many different options. You can either you know enclose these cells inside a semi permeable membrane, which we call encapsulation, and then put that encapsulated uh, cluster of of islet cells under the skin. Or you can try to go for the paradigm that was used for islet transplantation, inject these stem cell derived islets into the portal vein. Um, so these are a lot of things that, that scientists are considering. I think a lot of research still needs to go into figuring out what the optimal way to get these cells into patients is. Um, because also depending on where you go, that may affect how healthy the islet cells will be and, and how well they will function. Um, and then there are gonna be other, other things that, that scientists are gonna have to show, like how safe is this therapy? How can we show that? Um, or how do we protect against it in case that it is and it does end up being you know problematic because maybe we won't be able to know until we put it into patients. So how can we minimize the risk so to patients that are getting therapy that it could potentially become cancerous? Another thing is, of course, is that we want to make sure that these stem cell derived islets don't get rejected, just like the regular uh, islets that patients will get. One advantage we have working with stem cells is that we can engineer these stem cells in the lab. Like we could potentially give these stem cells beneficial properties that don't exist in quote-unquote natural organs. So we can make super organs. Uh, and that's actually one of the, some of the work that I'm doing in the lab with Dr. With Dr. Christina Nostro is how can we build super islets that will not be rejected? Uh, that's kind of some exciting stuff that may be on, on the horizon. Dr. Christina Nostro is, I think, one of the pioneers in this area. So one of the things that she's done is she figured out a way to uh, to get these cells to differentiate into islet cells. So as I kind of alluded to earlier, um, what we're trying to do in the lab is we're taking cells that essentially exist in an embryo and we're trying to build cells that exist in an adult. So we're kind of mimicking the way an embryo or a fetus will grow into an adult. Uh, and uh, as you can imagine, the cells that the stem cells need to follow a similar developmental trajectory as cells in an embryo would. Uh, so one of the first trajectories is uh, for cells to commit to just the pancreatic lineage. As I mentioned, there's lots of different cell types in the pancreas. Most of the pancreas is making enzymes for your food, uh, but about 5% of it is making hormones for your blood. Um, and so the first step is taking a pluripotent stem cell and telling it, you know, no, you have to stop trying to become a heart, stop trying to become a kidney, just focus on becoming a pancreas, commit to the pancreas lineage. And we call these committed cells, these committed stem cells, pancreatic progenitors. Dr. Nostra, one of the first things she did was she figured out a way to efficiently make these pancreatic progenitors in a dish. And then afterwards, one of the things that we need to worry about is what's the purity of the cell product we're going to get into patients. We're taking a whole population of stem cells that want to become every cell type of the body and trying to force them to just become islet cells. And, you know, we're good, but we're not that good. It's not pure yet. Uh, and so uh, Dr. Nostro figured out a way that we can actually just extract, you know, midway through the differentiation process, just those cells that will become pancreatic cells to enhance the purity and hopefully the safety of the final product. product. More recently, um, some of the work she's done has focused on how do we get these cells into patients. So, you know, as I mentioned, in a mouse, you can transplant into all sorts of weird places, but in a human, you want the surgery to be as minimally invasive as possible. So wouldn't be, it'd be great if we could just, you know, kind of inject these cells right under the skin, maybe in your forearm or your leg or somewhere, um, and not have to worry about having an invasive surgery. Well, the problem is your skin does not have that many blood vessels. So when you try to put organs there, they don't really survive or function very well. And your pancreas or your islets need a lot of blood to be able to get that insulin into your body. 
Um, but through uh, some pioneering work she's done um, with a collaborator, Dr. Sarah Vasconcelos, um, they found that if you use microvessels that you can extract just from the fat and you transplant these along with the islet cells, the islet cells tend to engraft or live much better just under the skin and function much better. So I think this is a huge advancement that'll, you know, uh, that'll really improve our ability to get these cells into patients. Um, and so that's some of the work that's already been published. Um, a lot of other exciting work is being done in the lab, um, both on the front of how we can generate superior islets for therapy, but also like in learning about how do islets just grow? How do these cells just develop? What are the signaling pathways that are important uh, in pancreatic progenitor development? Um, and then there's my work, as I briefly alluded into, is how do we tackle the issue of rejection? Are islet cells derived from stem cells even likely to be rejected? How, what are the factors that promote their rejection? And can we build sort of next generation islets that don't get rejected? So what are the major milestones for the development of cell-based therapies? Settling down on a finalized cell product is going to be very important. We do our research in the lab using research-grade reagents, using research-grade cell lines. Um, but as you can imagine, when we want to go into humans, we need to make sure, and Health Canada will require this, that we show some degree of safety, right? So we have to character, we have to find a cell type that we know was derived under safe conditions, not just kind of crudely extracted from an embryo or, you know, loosely developed in a research setting. We have to make sure it's kind of developed according to best manufacturing practices, that it's free of infections, free of some weird mutations that can promote cancer in the future. So settle on a cell line, we have to settle on a protocol that works. So although, you know, researchers around the world have gotten closer and closer to being able to generate pure populations of islet cells from pluripotent stem cells, the thing is, you know, each kind of, each pluripotent stem cell has its own personality and some behave well with certain protocols and some don't. So once we find a, a cell line that we like, that's safe and clean, then we have to find a protocol that works. Um, and we're moving very close to that stage. Then we have to demonstrate now using this kind of finalized product that it works in a preclinical model. There we can apply to Health Canada and say, can we go into patients? Can we start our phase one, two, and three clinical trials where we need to establish how many cells do we need to get into patients? What types of side effects are, are, are we going to find? You know, Does the method of transplantation and immunosuppression work? And once we show that you know it's it's safe and effective, then we start the big clinical trials and we start comparing this therapy against standards of care, whether it's the artificial pancreas or ex or exogenous insulin therapy, and showing that indeed our therapy is you know has some benefit over what what's currently available, either in terms of its ability to control blood sugar or its ability to, to prevent complications or even just quality of life. All those things are meaningful. So still, we, we still have a bit of ways to go, but I would say that there's a, you know, there's a big drive to get this into the patients. Um, you know, one of the major things that has to happen probably, I'd imagine, is partnerships with industry because they really do, they provide kind of the platform to be able to, um, you know, and the resources to be able to pursue these clinical trials. Um, and I think industry partners are really willing to get involved in the space. So, uh, you know, hopefully within the decade, I would say that we're going to start seeing these cells in patients. Are there any other therapies for diabetes currently being researched that you are excited about? For me, the thing that's, that's most, that I'm most excited about is the work we're doing in the lab. I think that's the most futuristic and it opens the way for a whole new modality or, or way of treating diseases or even thinking about diseases. Um, you know, if you think of the body as sort of modular swapping in and out organs. Um, but, you know, there have been a lot of other advances as well. I mean, we're treating a disease, but how can you prevent the disease? And I don't think there are clear ways that are available for patients right now um, in terms of being able to prevent type 1 diabetes especially, um, but there has been a lot of research going into ways that you can tinker with the immune system to kind of at least delay the onset. And there may be a time, you know, if we can really pinpoint the cause or, or the key step at which autoimmune disease is triggered in type 1 diabetes, we may be able to prevent it altogether and then avoid having to transplant foreign, you know, foreign stem cell derived organs and so on. So, I mean, that would be really the next frontier, I think. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I think that would be quite exciting. To learn more about stem cells, you can also check out our episodes 16 and 28 on the topic. You can also find a link to a great review paper from the Nostra Lab exploring the current and future use of stem cells for treatment of diabetes in our show notes. However, while there's a lot of promise in stem cell-based therapies, we felt we needed to acknowledge the effect that insulin has had on the millions of lives since its discovery. It's not perfect, and it's not a cure, but the impact of insulin is long-lasting, and it teaches us a lot. We think Dr. Drucker put it best. Yeah, I think in closing, you know, the discovery of insulin reminds us of the power of medical research and the payoffs for 
society that uh, scientific research and discovery can yield. And, you know, we've just come through an election in Canada, and one would have to strain uh, to really hear a word about the importance of research, even though we're being rescued from this COVID-19 epidemic by science. And so I, I think we always need to keep in mind as Canadians that an investment in science is an investment in the health and prosperity of not just our country, but really the global community. And we probably need to step up a little bit and increase our share of investment in scientific research because we're really quite a ways down the, the table in terms of the G7 or other global nations that are as wealthy as we are. So I think Canadians can be proud of the discovery of insulin and we should fund the next groups who are going to make the next breakthroughs and make sure they have the resources to do what they need to do in a competitive manner. As always, a very special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Daniel Drucker, Jennifer DeCruz, and Dr. Paresh Misra. And of course, thank you for listening. In honor of our 100th episode, we also wanted to thank everybody along the way who helped make Raw Talk podcast possible, including Richie Germain and Jabir Mohammed, the co-founders of the podcast, every member of the team over our six seasons who have each contributed their ideas, research, writing, time, creativity, and energy to make this podcast what it is today. We also want to shout out some members who don't always get the same recognition because they aren't directly involved in the episode production, including our amazing promotions and social media team, Atifa Mohammadi, Iman Nishat, Stephanie Tran, and Anam Islam. Our brilliant graphic designer, Janine Truong, our public relations team, Jan Falguera, Hannah Wabnitz, and Aaron Tong, our wonderful photographers, Nathan Chan and CJ Kim, and our exciting new science writing team, Elizabeth Karfsarki, Junaid Hussain, and Veena Sanmuganathan. Thanks to the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto for supporting us in every way from the very beginning, and to all our event sponsors over the years, including TD Insurance and MBNA, University of Toronto Graduate Student Union, School of Graduate Studies, Student Life, Health and Innovation Hub, and the Temetry Faculty of Medicine, as well as JLabs, Muse, InVivo, and the Gairdner Foundation. This episode was hosted by myself, Daniel, and Yagnesh. Swapna helped conduct the interviews, and Priska, Stefania, and Tsukiko helped develop content. Esther was our audio engineer, and Jesse was our executive producer. Tune in again in two weeks for our 101st episode on burnout in healthcare providers. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars.